0: Hello, and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we've got an absolute mother of an episode. Our guest is Julia Fine. Her first novel, What Should Be Wild, was Bram Stoker nominated, and today she's talking to me about her second, The Upstairs House. It's another tricksy tiptoe into the weirder edges of supernatural fiction. The Upstairs House is about a young mum facing the very real sacrifices of raising a child, balancing it with her own emotional and intellectual identity, and struggling with the reality of postpartum disorder. It doesn't help that she also seems to summon a couple of ghosts, one of whom lives in the titular upstairs house, an impossible apartment placed above her own. As you'll hear, Julie is not shy about taking on the false ideals of motherhood and picking them apart. That makes this an important book, One that, you know, addresses those unrealistic expectations that we all are conditioned to have. And it says, hey, it's normal to sometimes wish you hadn't had the goddamn baby. And Julia and I talk a lot about who would benefit from reading the novel. Quite aside from it being a learning experience, The Upstairs House is also an extremely clever, tricksy and puzzle-like exploration of parenthood, blended with some intriguing historical details. It's postmodern and anxiety-inducing and it makes you really grateful that you weren't just left on the doorstep somewhere as a child. Two brief asides before we start. First, I'm recording this in the immediate aftermath of the Texas Big Freeze. Now, I have a number of listeners in Texas and if you guys are hearing this, I really hope you're all well and warm. Secondly, we've talked about my accent before on this show. Some of you largely my North American listeners, bizarrely seem to like it. But if you're not from the UK, then you won't necessarily know how much people up north struggle with U's and H's. So this is an episode about the upstairs house, and it's a wonderful adventure for my local tongue. (laughs) So caveats made, let's go. Come with me to an apartment block with too many doors. If you can hear a child crying, don't worry. The ghost will take care of it. Let's talk scared. Hi, Julia, and welcome to Talking Scared. How's life for you?
1: Ah, uh, you know, it's the same as it's been for the past year, I guess. Um, hopefully, the light at the end of the tunnel.
0: <laughs> hopefully, yeah. Where do we find you today?
1: I'm in Chicago.
0: Wow, so you're in the kind of heart of the storm right now then?
1: Yeah, yeah, freezing cold. I don't know, it's a great city. Most of the time, not the best place to be in the winter during a pandemic, but a good place to live.
0: (laughs) I've never been to Chicago, it's on my list, I must get there one day. Are you from there originally?
1: I'm actually from Washington, D.C., right outside, Um, but I met my husband uh, in college and moved here. He's from outside of Chicago, so we've been here ever since.
0: I'm in a place that's roughly as cold as where you are as well. I live in the the Pennines in Northern England. And today it is a, I won't say winter wonderland. It's more of a winter hellscape outside my window <laughs> right now. So you're here today to talk about your new novel, The Upstairs House. Where to begin with this novel? It's kind of part ghost story, part existential crisis.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: A third part postpartum nightmare. Um I've read it just the once because obviously I have a massive reading schedule with this show. I do feel like I need to read this one again to really unearth all of its layers and levels of meaning. But start us off as I always ask with a brief synopsis. What what do we need to know?
1: So at its core, uh The Upstairs House is about a new mother uh who just had her first baby and she either is being haunted by the ghost of Margaret Wise Brown, who is the author of the children's books, Goodnight Moon, The Runaway Bunny, among many, many others, and Margaret Wise Brown's lover, Michael Strange, who was a female poet who was older, and they had sort of a tumultuous relationship. So either she's being haunted by these two sort of literary ghosts, or she's experiencing postpartum psychosis. Uh, So I called this my postpartum poltergeist novel. So a little uh, Henry James asks sort of, is it, is there a ghost or is she just sort of losing her mind?
0: Well, that was going to be one of my questions.
1: (laughs) Is there a ghost or is she? Yeah.
0: (laughs) We'll get to that in depth in a bit, hopefully. Mm -hmm. My first question, though, sort of set the ground with this. And I hope you don't don't mind me asking, but how much of the upstairs house is born, no pun intended, out (laughs) of your own experiences?
1: Um, so I had a baby in my first baby was born in 2017. And I had, I was very surprised by what the day to day of taking care of a brand new baby was like, I think I knew a lot about pregnancy. And I knew a lot about sort of the the brighter side of new parenthood. And I had babysat I knew kids, but I didn't really understand just how physically grueling and emotionally difficult. It was going to be to go from sort of being totally independent and my body was my own and my time was my own and I could sleep and I, you know, could do things uh, to having this baby dependent on me all the time, awake to eat every two hours, um, just sort of the physical Consequences and like the traumas of childbirth, like in the movies, I feel like you see women who snap back right away and they're just out and about and walking around, and it takes you know your body has just been through a major trauma. So I wasn't I wasn't prepared for that, and I felt like I hadn't read a lot that would prepare me. Um, I think literature there's sort of a dearth of information, both like practical information and also literature. So I was definitely interested in exploring that in a book. I didn't really have postpartum depression. I think what I had was more of just sort of a the usual transition from being responsible only for myself and having my freedom to having a baby dependent on me, which is just sort of this emotional transition. Um, but I started to think, what if these sort of moments of frustration that I'm experiencing, what if I sort of pushed on those? And it wasn't just a brief moment where I thought, you know, why won't you stop crying, baby? But it was, you know, a week alone with the baby, the baby crying. What would I do? How would I feel? Um, what What does it look like to go to sort of the extreme of some of these postpartum mood disorders? The, the germ of the idea came from my own experience, um, but my time as a new mom, while it has some similarities to Megan, the protagonist, uh, it was not it was not anything like sort of what she
0: experiences. Well that's good to hear. <laughs> I mean I'm going to make I'm going to make a comment now that sounds so ridiculously trivial. And please let me complete this because otherwise you may storm off.
1: <laughs>
0: me and my wife don't have children uh, and I have absolutely no idea really about the depth and extremity of the stress and the emotions and all these things that you know you're talking about. Basically I bought a puppy in in August. And just the needs of that puppy and just the fact that I can't leave the house for eight hours at a time and I, I have to be around to keep this thing alive. Even that, I found a real kind of incursion into my my sense of self. So I can't imagine what it's like to do it with a human. Um, I can fully understand how you get a horror novel from that pressure.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, I do think, I think a pet is a good gateway into that. I remember we got a cat at this point, like six or seven years ago. And I remember thinking that too, like there's something alive in my house that isn't me, you know? Um, And then a baby is just times a million.
0: (laughs) Well, that's it. There are no parents all over the world listening to this, either rolling their eyes or screaming at me saying, having a dog isn't the same. I'm not saying it is people. I'm just saying I've I've got the slightest touch of it.
1: Although, although... A baby, though, a baby grows up and eventually uh, can care for themselves and a dog you've got forever, so or a dog sort of is dependent on you. So there's, I mean, there's some parallels there.
0: Well, I'm glad you said that, not me. <laughs> it, it was interesting that you said you haven't read much or you hadn't read much literature that dealt with the minutiae of the day-to-day of being a new mother. Mm-hmm. I like to think that I read pretty widely, you know, I, I try and read fiction by men I try and read more fiction by women than I have done before. I read across as many cultures and subcultures as possible. But I can't really remember ever coming across a novel that deals head on with this kind of postpartum disorder. Mm -hmm. Am I ignorant in my reading habits or is it something that's been neglected by literature?
1: Uh, You know, I'm sure it's there somewhere. Um, I... I had trouble finding it. There's uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper from, what is it, the late 1800s, I think? Don't quote me on the date. It's a short story written 200 years ago. Um, Again, don't quote me on the date.
0: 1892.
1: Oh, you found it? 1892. Perfect.
0: Man Googles things on podcast.
1: Yay. Okay. Anyway, so 1892. So that she has a story. It's about a woman it's sort of unclear what it's about because it's in the first person and it's written, this woman has been sort of locked into this room and you can sort of tease out the fact that she's recently had a baby and is experiencing some sort of postpartum something. And she sees like the wall, the wallpaper starts to move in the room and she sort of has, um, I think they label her as hysterical as, as they did during that time to any woman who had an experience that wasn't sort of, cut and dry what they wanted her to be having. Anyway, so that, that was definitely an inspiration, that short story. But I had not seen much that was about, like you said, the particular sort of those very intense first few weeks and months. I think um, there's literature about what it's like to parent and to parent young children even. But sort of the, like you said, the minutiae and the very sort of visceral experience of when you have literally just had a baby and now have to take care of both yourself, having just had a baby and this child, uh, I hadn't really seen much.
0: No, like, like you say, a lot of it, women either bounce back immediately or the the, the depression and the, and the disorder is treated as such a kind of extreme exploitative thing that it almost mm-hmm. becomes, you know, so divorced from reality. I have never actually seen anything that deals with the nuts and bolts of being a new mother in this way. So it was quite an eye-opener for me. And what it made me think is... Horror, as I mentioned, or, you know, terror or unease or whatever you want to, whatever adjective you want to use for this novel, um, seems a really apt way to address that theme. So your first novel, What Should Be Wild, was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. Did you come to the upstairs house thinking, I'm going to write a horror novel? Or did that kind of happen against your will?
1: Um, I, I definitely while I was awake with my son in those early days, it was just the two of us in the middle of the night. And I was sort of, I actually started out thinking, I feel sort of like Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window, where everyone else is asleep or doing something else, and I'm the only one. And what if, you know, a new mom saw something out the window? And my initial intention, I think, was to have more of like a psychological thriller crime novel. Um, but I think I just am drawn to horror because... um I, I think that you can talk about emotion in such an interesting way by including a ghost or some you know, a monster or a creature or something like that that can sort of uh, personify some of the feelings that you're talking about in a way that in pot boiler psychological thriller you might not be able to. And I was just so interested in this idea of being haunted basically by the person you might have been had you not have had a child, or by the person that you were before you had a child and sort of what that would mean. And it just made so much sense that there would be a real ghost and it would be a horror novel. Um, And I also think sort of that sense of unease in the postpartum period, especially with your first child, where you're not really sure what's normal and what's not, because like, obviously it's not normal to be waking up every two hours to feed a baby, but also that is normal for having a new baby. And, you know, it's not normal for, you to feel like your body doesn't belong to you anymore, but it kind of is. And so that question of sort of the uncanny was there. And so it just, yeah, like you said, it lent itself so nicely to a horror story or sort of a story with elements of horror.
0: The uncanny is a word that gets used a lot and it gets used in academic circles in a very specific way. And Mm -hmm. as I've explained on this show before, the uncanny in, in its truest sense is to do with something that was once recognized becoming unrecognisable for listeners who don't know it comes from the German word unheimlich which means unhomely so it's when the home suddenly is turned to something that is unhomely so it's a bit of a paradox and in this novel as much as the home becomes unhomely and unrecognisable Meg our protagonist her body and her sense of self in many ways becomes unrecognisable to herself and I found that a really Mm -hmm. interesting twist on what the uncanny can be and how disoriented we can be in our own lives. Yeah,
1: I am, I think that's exactly the way to put it. And I think although her experience is extreme, like I said, I sort of decided how how far can I push a postpartum mood disorder? How, you know, for the sake of making it an interesting book. Um, but I also think that's a really common feeling for anyone who's had a baby. I Even if you're having the most wonderful postpartum experience, I think there's moments where, you look at yourself and you don't really recognize mentally or physically what you see.
0: Yeah. And I think as much as we have ghosts and supernatural incursions and all these things in this novel, and we will get to that. I, I do feel like the real terror of the novel is much more to do with that sense of destabilized self and, you know, your life shifting in, in, in uncanny ways. Um I want to kick off, with, I think, maybe a rich vein of conversation here by picking up on a tweet that you you actually tweeted yesterday, oh. <laughs> which, which it made me laugh. I thought, oh, that is going to be rich picking. So <laughs> you tweeted that, quote, everyone knows you can only appreciate a book if you've been through the exact same scenario as the protagonist. This is why The Hunger Games was so popular. <laughs>
1: I'm glad you found that funny. I
0: Well, I kind of haven't read the book, I kind of knew exactly what you're referring to. Mm-hmm. But well, let's see if I'm right. What what was that reaction to? What what's the, the, the backlash being?
1: I've seen some feedback already, some early feedback from the book that says, you know, this is not for me because either I am not a new mother, which is so ridiculous because well it's all it's all ridiculous. People say either it's not for me because I'm not a new mother, or they say, It's not for me because I'm not going through this experience in my life at this exact moment, which seems even more wild to me. Like I said, I mean, I what what book have you found that is just a detail of the exact experience that you're going through in that moment? Um, and also, why do we read if not to to learn and to experience and sort of see the world through other people's eyes and see these new experiences. And so if you're a new parent and you're feeling really alone because the world is telling you that you're supposed to be so happy because you have this new baby and that you're supposed to enjoy all of the difficult things, I want it to be a book that people can recognize themselves in and people can say, hey, it's actually normal um, to feel some resentment and some grief and, you know, all these complicated feelings mixed in with the joy of having a baby. But I think that You certainly don't need to have had that experience to enjoy the book. There's many layers to the book. It's also about the life of Margaret Wise Brown. Um, But even even if there wasn't that, I think there's so much value, like I said, in reading to learn about other people and other experiences. And this is an experience that so many people have. Like you said, it opens up a conversation into why I think the publishing industry and film, like why representation is so important. You know, like, like it's important to see yourself in art. It's important that there is some book out there that sort of represents you, but also it's important that a book represents somebody else and that you pick that book up and you feel you understand somebody else.
0: Well, for a start, I mean, I remember reading The Shining and thinking, this would be good if only I was alcoholic. <laughs> I think the thing about representation, I hadn't really thought about, but exactly that. I mean, I, I think one of the great beauties of literature is that you have the option to pick up this book which is a a piece of physical telepathy that allows you to experience someone else's thoughts now Mm -hmm. even if you as an author haven't experienced the thing you're writing about you know I as a reader still get to see how your brain works which is a wonderful thing but it's even more valuable when I get to see how your brain works about a thing that you've experienced to some degree that I can never experience that seems to me to be the point of reading a book um So yes, in short, it's a ridiculous critique to throw at this novel. I do think there are aspects of the novel that may not be for everyone. It's quite a challenging reading experience in some ways. But I think to not like it because it doesn't speak to your exact situation is just the most redundant thing I've ever heard. I agree. (laughs) Well, yeah, I I, I figured you would. Um, What I would say, though, what I do find much more interesting than that kind of ridiculous point is why certain people who do read the book and do like the book, as I have, why they may find the book challenging. Mm. Um, It goes back to a conversation I had a few weeks ago with Courtney Summers about her novel, The Project, where we talked about the notion of unlikable protagonists. And we came to the kind of conclusion that unlikable protagonists is a a charge that is only levied at female characters. A man can be an anti-hero. A woman has to be an unlikable protagonist. And then the very next book I read was The Upstairs House. And (laughs) I met Meg, who really put me on the back foot. (laughs) So I've got to hold my hand up and say that as I was reading it, my instinctive reaction, importantly, my instinctive reaction, not my considered reaction, but my Mm -hmm. instinctive reaction was to be quite shocked and sometimes quite appalled by Meg. But at the same time, I hope I'm self-aware enough to recognise that That's coming from me being conditioned within this cultural ideal of motherhood. For a start, how damaging do you think those ideals are? And were you actively trying to pick them apart in how you presented motherhood in this novel?
1: Yeah, oh, I definitely was. Like I said earlier, I think it's so normal to have conflicting feelings. And I think it's really normal to be unsure of what you're doing and confused and exhausted and resentful and wish maybe you had not decided to have this baby who came in and destroyed what had been a perfectly easy, relatively easy life. Um, But we've been taught that if you have those feelings and you express those feelings, it's wrong. You're a bad mother. You're not caring for your baby. Um, If you have any sort of mood disorder that's on you. And there's, I mean, there's such a stigma for any sort of mental health any, any mental health struggles that anyone has at any point in time. And when you add that on top of the pressures that are put on mothers, I think, um, it really just sort of compounds that feeling that you've done something wrong and this is your fault and you can't tell anybody and you have to sort of grin and bear it and put on a smile and, you know, be like all these other happy mothers that you see on social media and in movies and on TV. Um, And I do think that's so damaging because it takes something where maybe you could have a moment where you talk to a friend or a therapist or your partner uh, and say, hey, I'm struggling. This is how I'm feeling. And they could then say, hey, that's okay. It's a normal way to feel. But if you don't express it, it just festers and it simmers and it ends up. I mean, that's sort of what happens to Megan in this book is she has these feelings. She doesn't know really what to do with them um, because you know, in her family, she doesn't come from a culture of talking about emotion necessarily, and we don't live in a culture where mothers really talk about this regularly and have a safe space to have these conversations. And so things fester, things boil over. Um, it becomes this sort of haunting and this ghost story. Whereas I think, given given the tools, maybe she could have caught herself earlier. She could have had the support. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely wanted to this book to be sort of a door and an opening for the conversation of early motherhood is really, really hard. And it's okay if you're not feeling the way you are supposed to be feeling. And you're not a bad mom for feeling guilty. And you're not a bad mom for wanting a minute alone, um, especially right now during a pandemic.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really important that people who aren't just new mothers read a book like this, because mm-hmm. as you say, it breaks in that taboo of thinking that if you aren't The idealized maternal figure that you're in some way evil, um, which is the that's the dichotomy we're almost presented with sometimes that it is either or. Uh, And there are bits in this book, as I say, where I was actually quite taken aback. Like there's there's one quite innocuous part where Megan is working on on a a piece of work, a thesis, and Clara, her baby, is crying and she keeps crying and keeps crying, and and Megan just calmly says, "Hush, mummy is thinking." and ignores her and, and that left me feeling so uncomfortable far more than some of the more grandiose things that go wrong yeah uh, just that sense that she needs to carve out some time for herself but she can't and this baby needs, oh yeah I found it I found it very tense and, and it, it led me to think that the novel doesn't so much deal in horror or terror as it deals in tension And I mean that both in terms of genre, you know, it being at its heart, quite a tense thriller in the vein of something like Rosemary's Baby. But it's also about tension, like the tension in Meg's marriage, the tension between her family and the tension inside Meg's own sense of self. Was that at the forefront of your mind when you were constructing the pace and the tone?
1: It definitely was. I mean, I I envision this as a book where just the screw turns tighter and tighter and tighter. And now I'm Henry James again, the turn of the the screw. So not my metaphor. Um, But yeah, where just the tension ratchets up and up and up and up and finally reaches sort of this breaking point. I guess you can interpret it as you will, whether or not it's a cathartic sort of tension breaking. But I definitely had that in mind. And I think it's definitely something that... um, fits both like the structure of the book and also thematically just what it's like to be again in a, a marriage that isn't necessarily the best partnership with a baby when you didn't necessarily sort of expect that having a baby would be the way it is um, and also the tension I'm interested in is between like you said this idea of can you be a mother who works and also cares for the child like the tension between those decisions of, you know, what do you attend to and how do you balance your own intellectual life with motherhood?
0: Well, yeah, and it is interesting that you choose to make Megan a, um, is she a doctoral student? She is, yes. Yeah. Right, so she's doing a, a PhD thesis, which is something I've been there and done that. And I that nearly drove me insane. I, I nearly had a break <laughs> then when I did my PhD. So um, just reading about her trying to do it whilst raising a baby it was enough to give me a cold sweat um but w- yeah let's talk about that other side of the novel then because we haven't got into this kind of haunting aspect yet talk to me and to the listeners about these two characters margaret wise brown and michael strange they are two real historical characters give us enough to to go with in case we may not have heard of them
1: yeah. So, um, so in The Upstairs House, Megan is working on uh, a dissertation in, it's about modernism in children's literature. Um, and so there was in uh, the US in the like 30s and early 40s, um, sort of a new type of children's literature that came out of the progressive early childhood education movement, where books went from being just fairy tales, once upon a time, sort of magic touches that we're used to, um, to the kind of children's book that we're actually used to seeing now for very small children. So something along the lines of a fire truck goes beep beep, you know, or good night moon where you say like good night comb, good night brush. Um, and it's much more based on a child's actual experience. And so Margaret Wise Brown, uh, the author, was at the forefront of that. And so as Megan, uh, the protagonist, is working on her dissertation, she's researching Margaret Wise Brown and Margaret Wise Brown um, sort of starts appearing in, in the novel um, in sort of Megan's condominium building. And uh, so Margaret Wise Brown had a 10-year relationship with a woman named Michael Strange, who also appears in the novel, who was a poet and a socialite and sort of a, an actress. She's a bit of a dilettante. She was really just like a Gilded Age, wealthy, well-connected woman who really had a had a massive influence on Margaret, and they had this love affair. and so in the book, Megan is working on this dissertation, and Margaret and Michael sort of pop up to tell her what she should or should not be working on, and her dissertation they sort of they sort of haunt her manuscript um and you sort of see the manuscript go from being a fairly typical academic text um, to something that sort of has a touch of the ghostly about it,
0: I would say. Just for full disclosure, my research background is into metafictional gothic. Oh,
1: definitely metafiction, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that
0: that that got me salivating quite a bit, which is why I say I want to read it again. Because anything like this always yeah. bears repeat reading because there's always that extra meta layer to 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 plumb into. Mm-hmm. And I want to put, I want to get into that with you now. But, but before we do, let's you know more broadly. How did you conceptualize this novel that has these two strands? You know, the the motherhood aspect. Where did, where did Margaret Wise Brown and Michael Strange enter that equation?
1: Um, so I, after having a kid, I read Goodnight Moon all the time. And I found it so weird and so interesting. And I, as a child, I had not realized quite how creepy and unsettling it was. Um, there's that one page where, you know, you say goodnight, to everything in the room. And then it says, good night, nobody. And it's just a blank page. And I thought, ooh, a ghost story, you know, right away. And I was also just curious about who had written it. And as soon as I started reading about Margaret Wise Brown, I was just shocked that she was so different from how you would imagine somebody who wrote children's books. Uh, she, so she died at age 42. So she was very young and she was an avid rabbit hunter. Uh, she was bisexual she had this weird cabin in Maine that she would go to and swim naked in the ocean and draped it in furs and just was a very, very interesting woman. And I was fascinated by her and I felt like her story needed to be told. I was sort of surprised. I've Actually, I felt not surprised, but lucky. I felt lucky that I didn't see there wasn't another Margaret Wise not Brown novel that sort of was trying to tell the same story I was trying to tell. Um and this relationship with Michael Strange was so interesting to me too because it was definitely a toxic relationship. Um, they, I don't think either woman was necessarily good for the other. They, Their letters survive and it's so interesting to sort of like read between the lines there where neither was really getting what they needed from the relationship and neither of them could really let go. And by all accounts, there were sort of some abusive aspects of it. But I sort of thought, well, isn't this, a little bit like sort of if you are raising an infant, if you have a baby where, you know, you're you're so in love, but also miserable and the baby is totally dependent and sort of like yanking your chain a little bit, you know, um, and so I felt like that was my, my way in to connect these two stories. Uh, and then it took me a while to figure out that sort of psychosis and modernism make a very good pairing as well. Um, So a lot of what Megan talks about in her dissertation and sort of what Margaret Wise Brown was interested in were some of these uh, modernist writers like Gertrude Stein or James Joyce, very interested in just immersing themselves in sensory experience and sort of following ideas in, in the same way that somebody who is experiencing psychosis might follow an idea where you're just jumping, you know, from one thing to the next and it's about what's immediately in front of you and what you see and smell and hear and you're just immersed in this sort of present moment and it seemed like a really good way to talk about both things at once.
0: The greatest pleasure of this podcast is is reading a book and being able to actually ask the author the questions that have left you confused. Yeah. Yeah, that's a perfect example of that because I I hadn't seen the connection between modernism and what's going on in, in Megan's very postmodern life. Um, And that, that's a very illuminating answer. Speaking about postmodernism though. So like, as you say, the the thesis that she's writing is on modernist authors. You've written a very postmodern novel to the extent that you're playing around with text and, and as you say, textual hauntings and Megan's document is haunted by these characters the document we're reading, your novel is haunted by them because you you've represented her thesis within your novel. Mm-hmm. What was the thinking behind that? Because it's a whole different strand that takes you away from the from the, the plot yeah. we're reading.
1: it, you know, initially it really was um it was just a question of how do I get all of this information to the reader in a way that isn't just, you know, great long paragraphs of exposition and Megan explaining, you know, this is what my thesis is about and here's what I'm trying to say. And here's the background that you need on these women and children's literature to understand what comes next in the book. I I jokingly said, like, ideally I could give you a reading list and you would read all of these books and then you can read my book and you would see sort of what I'm working with. Um, But unless you have that background information about Margaret's life and her influences and, how she came up in this movement of early children's literature. It, it's hard to really understand what Megan is going through and what her, her relationship to Margaret Wise Brown and sort of what comes after. And so I just had just the question of like, how do I get this information across? Um, and it took me a while to hit upon putting in the thesis and then letting the thesis sort of morph as Megan's experience morphs So that it goes from being sort of nuts and bolts, very um, like academic factual information, sort of then becomes something more fanciful as Megan falls further into this like sort of rabbit hole of postpartum mood disorder.
0: This might be quite a stretch as a comparison, but in a weird way, it kind of reminded me of House of Leaves.
1: I know about House of Leaves, but I have not actually read it. But I will take that as a compliment because I think that when I do sit down to read it, it's going to be right up my alley.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it's one of the greatest compliments I can give, to be honest. I mean, House of Leaves, as, as I've talked to, to death on this show, it's, it, it's a novel which contains a, a full academic treatise on the supernatural phenomenon occurring in another part of the novel Basically, it finished postmodernism. There's nothing else you can really do in <laughs> at The House of Leaves. no it's, it's kind yeah. of done, um, but yeah, it reminded me of that. But both in the representation of the the document within the story, but also another aspect of the haunting that I found the most fascinating. And I've I've, I've toyed with how to articulate this question, right? But mm-hmm. the, the titular house upstairs, what that basically refers to is that. Megan lives in a condominium and she goes up a flight of stairs and there is a doorway in in the hall there that leads into a house that is kind of an impossible space because it leads into a into Margaret Wise Brown's house, which isn't there. And it's actually somewhere else. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's what happens. Now, how do I ask this? Um, it got me thinking about the nature of haunting and the nature of that space, because I couldn't work out where the phenomenon fell between the real in terms of its happening in Megan's reality, between the surreal or between the metaphorical, because at times the house upstairs seems to be at one minute a psychological device, at the next minute it seems to be a real, physical but impossible space, and at other times it seems to be a metaphor for something. And, and the linked to house of to leaves, there is, that I think, the the Nabluson maze has a similar sliding scale of what it is. Mm-hmm. That's a very elaborate question but what what is the house upstairs?
1: Um you know I think it's all all of those things at once. I I think of the upstairs house uh, you can also think of it as just sort of the mind. There there's a very real question of like is this a book about a woman sort of losing her mind? And I think in one sense it is and in another sense it's a ghost story. Um and I think I because the book is told from Megan's perspective and Megan is so convinced that it's real, um, then for her, it's real, right? So as the reader, you're reading it, you're reading it from her perspective and it's real. Uh, but then there's the question of, is she experiencing a postpartum mood disorder in which case would it not be real? And so as the reader, you have that layer of remove where you can sort of, you have the distance that she doesn't have to say hey maybe these things you think are happening aren't actually happening um and so on that level sort of it becomes some like more of a mental trap more of a metaphor um and then you're right sort of the the impossible space the sort of ghost story nature of it and i was trying to draw on the tradition of sort of the ghost story where just the one person can see the ghost and are you losing your mind or is there a ghost, or does it even matter because it, what matters is sort of the the response that it provokes. So I would like to say that it's everything at once. I think that there's a lot of readers who want sort of a, well, is this real? Yes or no? Uh, but I think it's just more complicated than that for me. And I I appreciate a book where sort of it operates on multiple levels, and there's a bit of a mystery to it. And you can read it through once as if it's actually happening and then read it through another time as if it's all in her head and get something different out of the experience both times and so i guess i don't really have an answer
0: <laughs> i think you're right some readers want a neat tied up answer i'm kind of i like both so i i love a ghost story where you find out you know what the burial ground was where the demon came from i love when it's all neatly packaged and it's told in that very traditional way i think that's great it's satisfying i also love A kind of postmodern story in which the inability of resolution is the point, if you know what I mean.
1: Oh, 100%.
0: Yeah, this falls very much into that camp where it's not really about answering the question. It's about the fact that you can't answer the question, I would say.
1: In my writing, in my drafting, especially, I lean toward as ambiguous as possible. And then at a certain point, I realize a reader needs something to grasp onto. Um, and so this was about as, as clear as I could make it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. One thing that did interest me, though, very much is, we've touched on it already, but the link between texts so or between writing and, and haunting, mm. because, mm-hmm. so Margaret and Michael both kind of turn up in Megan's life but they manifest in different ways. Margaret appears in a very corporeal form, whereas Michael, as you said before, is is the postpartum poltergeist for the majority of the story. And I was wondering, are you trying for a kind of meta-reading of ghosts there? Because at one point you say that Margaret has a body of work and therefore she has a body as a ghost and Michael doesn't and therefore doesn't. Are you trying to say something about haunting and writing and legacy
1: yeah i i am um so margaret wise brown obviously is posthumously just ridiculously successful um you know has sold millions of copies worldwide of goodnight moon and then the rest of her catalog and has just really had this career that were she alive to see it michael strange i think would be intensely jealous of Margaret's career was on the rise as Michael's was sort of on the on the down, on the downfall. Posthumously, after they both died, nobody really knows who Michael Strange is, except that she was once married to John Barrymore, the actor, and she had this affair with Margaret Weiss-Brown. Like, that's really her claim to fame. There isn't much out there about her. It's hard to get a hold of her work. I had to really dig uh, to turn up her autobiography and her books of poems with Margaret Wise Brown, everything is readily available. There's so much information. Everybody knows her name. Um, and so I felt like it would be just sort of, I suppose, an inside joke, a little nod to sort of that that competition and the way that that manifests uh, throughout the book. And I also was interested because um, when it came to sort of having bodies, bodies of work, um, self-presentation, I was interested too. Because Margaret Wise Brown, for all of her quirks, um, was always very much herself, whereas Michael Strange, when you read about her, it seems like she was sort of putting on, she's sort of playing a role, putting on a facade a lot of the time. Um, like if you read her autobiography, it's very grandiose and it feels very like, for example, actually, this is one of the things that struck me early on. She talks about having a baby and she says, and then I woke up and everything was wonderful and I was a mother. So it's like things like that, where it just, you don't feel, you don't feel like you really know her she's sort of hiding herself. Whereas with Margaret, a lot of what remains are her journals and her letters where she's hard to understand sometimes, but it's not because she's hiding herself. It's because she was just a really complicated person. Uh, So I was interested in this idea of what's left of us when we do sort of present a certain version of ourselves to the world. Would that mean something different, you know, to, to come back and to haunt I guess in my version, Michael wants Megan, the protagonist, to be writing, you know, the version of Michael that Michael presented to the world. But, like, who was she really and how, what gets left behind after you die if what you've presented is always this sort of facade and this ego?
0: Yeah, and that ties back, doesn't it, into, you know, writing as birth and and haunting as legacy. Because, you know, Megan is going through this thing where she is externalizing herself into her baby, into Clara, there's lots of talk about, you know, the, the skin meeting. And they've almost been one being for quite a while. And then obviously Clara, Clara will outlive her and will become her kind of living legacy. Yeah. And it, and it's the same with a book that, you know, you you write mm-hmm. a book and you birth it and then it out, outlasts you. Um, And all this we're talking about, all the, these meta-textual, meta-fictional levels, takes me back right to the very origins of the Gothic because exactly the same thing is done in Frankenstein, you know, where the whole link between the book and the monster in Frankenstein. And that was all born from the trauma of a child being lost and Mm -hmm. traumatic motherhood and all that. So the more I listen to you talk, the more aware I am of how this fits closely into the Gothic, although it may not seem to at first when you read it, but it's all there. That stuff that you're doing has been, you know, it's in in a long tradition.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely.
0: It does feel like this is a piece of work that could help shift some perspectives on some important issues so my last question about the book for you is obviously you want everyone to read your book but who do you think really needs to read it
1: oh gosh um i think the people who probably need it most are the people who have new parents particularly new mothers in their lives and don't necessarily know what they can do to help or what the experience is like Um, i think so i I already have said that i want you know new moms who feel alone and feel like they're the only ones experiencing this to read this book and recognize that it's actually really common to have these mixed feelings but i also think um, it's important for someone like you said yourself who hasn't had kids and doesn't really know what the experience is like i think for you then to read it if there's someone in your life especially sort of given what's going on in the world right now and how isolated we all are feeling. Um, I think new parents right now are feeling especially isolated. It's everything that I've been writing about on top of having no human contact and being in lockdown, you know? Um, So I think that people who have, have new parents in their lives and want to understand what those new parents might be going through and what they can do and how they can be a support system, because there isn't, I mean, there's not... There's not all that much you can physically do, but I think just having, having people who understand and, you know, even, even being able to call up your friend who just had a baby and say, Hey, I know this is really hard. You're doing great. I think that is so huge. And so I think if people can read this book and and it gives them insight into what their loved ones and people in their lives are going through, I think that would be wonderful.
0: I think, as I say, it's worked on me anyway. It's it's given me a new perspective on, on, on things <laughs> that glad. I instinctively reacted to quite coldly. By the end, I was, mm-hmm. it felt quite triumphant by the end that Megan had come to the realisation that she loved her child. It was quite a, it's quite a, it's a strange thing for a, a 37-year-old man without children to really root for. But by the end, I, I was rooting for that.
1: I'm glad. I'm so glad. <laughs> Good.
0: What's next for you?
1: I have the very beginnings of a next novel that have been sort of sidelined by the fact that my kid is not in school anymore. Uh, so I am potentially writing something about Vivaldi's Venice um, and maybe a lagoon monster, but it's so early. So don't hold me to it. I am at the very no, early no, I No, I,
0: I will hold you to that. <laughs> I, I, I love monsters and I love Venice. So that, yeah, that needs to happen.
1: Yeah. So we'll see. And yeah, I mean, just promoting this now, trying to take things one day at a time and get through the rest of this strange season.
0: <laughs> Indeed. So this is published on February 23rd.
1: Yes. Excellent. Is, yeah. is, that,
0: is that in all regions? Is that?
1: It's just North America. We'll see. I mean, I'm hoping if enough people are interested in the UK, we can generate some interest there. But at the moment, it's just North American.
0: Okay. All I have left to do now is ask you my four questions that I ask each of my guests. Oh, I've just checked. You can get it in the UK on Kindle. So that is good news for everyone. Oh,
1: good. I'm glad you've checked.
0: (laughs) You can get it. Right. So question the first of my rapid fire round. What was your gateway to horror?
1: (sighs) Fairy tales.
0: Oh, go on.
1: I watched Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods as a kid, which is just, I mean, totally inappropriate for the age that I was when I watched it. Um, But it's these very dark, sort of the original interpretations of fairy tales, you know, where the stepsisters cut off their feet to fit into Cinderella's slipper. Um, And I think that that sort of seeing, seeing desire made manifest was the gateway really to horror for me. It led me to Angela Carter, who... I would, I would call a lot of what she does horror. Um,
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that, that was sort of my way in.
0: It's the thing with Angela Carter. She was mentioned by everyone in the eighties and nineties and over the last 10 years, she seems to have gone off the boil. I'm not quite sure what's happened there.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the bloody chamber is my sort of all time, one of my all time favorites. So my, my first book actually has, has heavy, is heavily influenced by sort of her, her fairy tales.
0: Yeah, I can see that. They are horrifying. If you could recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: Um, I think Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin. Uh, I
0: haven't read this yet, but I've heard such good things about oh, it. it.
1: It's so, it's good. I think that it's sort of a, a, com- a cousin to The Upstairs House, or The Upstairs House is a cousin to Fever Dream, because it is also a book about parenthood as horror um and sort of what you can and can't do for your children and also just this surrealist like literal fever dream of a story I highly recommend it it's like a one sitting book that just will leave you very unsettled
0: (laughs) yeah I keep being told it's quite a disquieting experience so I need to read that yeah okay that's a great recommendation third question if you had one piece of advice for a fledgling horror novelist what would it be
1: I think I would say lean in to what feels sort of weird about your work. Um, You know, something that might feel like, oh, nobody's doing this. Should I do it? I think the answer is yes, because then you're the one you're the one doing it. And yeah, like just leaning in to the bizarre, the strange, the uncomfortable.
0: That all sounds very promising. And, And my last question, thank you for all your answers. But my last question, what truly scares you?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, (laughs) uh, I mean, if I say climate change, is that just too dark? Is it too? No, no. The real world things. Yeah. The real world things are what scare me. The things where it feels like they are coming for us and so outside of our individual control. And, you know, it's hard to turn the ship, but we have to keep trying. I guess that's what scares me is sort of the the idea that the ship can't be turned.
0: Now, you can't go too dark on this show. I always do this. I ask that question last, and it always leaves things in a quite uncomfortable place.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Which we, I mean, I, maybe we, we deserve to feel uncomfortable, though. There's a lot. I mean, if we're talking sort of real world horror, there's a lot sort of that we should feel uncomfortable about. So,
0: Climate change. It's the big one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm speaking to <laughs> Jeff Vandermeer um, in a few weeks. Oh, uh, so yeah, he, he'll have
1: a lot to say. Yeah,
0: he'll have a lot to say about that, I imagine. So mm-hmm. look forward to that. Where can people find you online, Julia?
1: Uh, my website is julia-fine.com. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter, as you saw, at, uh, at Fine Julie, F-I-N-E-J-U-L-I.
0: Well, thank you very much. I hope the book is a huge success. I think it will really resonate with a lot of people. I hope, as we have continually said, I hope it resonates with more people than the immediate demographic because it's a learning curve that people need. But for now, all I can say is, Julia Fine, thanks for talking Scared. Thank you so much. Hands up all the new parents who want my head on a stick for comparing their baby to my puppy. (laughs) As I was saying it, I knew it was a risky proposition, but I I stand by it to a degree. As Julia said, you guys will eventually get yourselves a fully functional human. I'm stuck with this hairy idiot for his entire life. Have you seen Ted? Cutest pooch alive and a certifiable lunatic. Have a look on my Twitter. Every third or fourth entry these days is a picture of him, including one recently which both of our hairstyles are so long you can't tell where one of us ends and the other begins. Anyway, weekly dog chat over with. Let's address the upstairs house. So... This is not a criticism when I say that this book is not for everyone. If you're looking for a quick, page-slamming read with an easy resolution and a linear plot that will excite you and, you know, be a great read in the bath or on holiday, God help us, pick up a Dean Koontz, or even better, go read C.J. Tudor's The Burning Girl is a fantastic thriller. The Upstairs House is a puzzle box of a book. It demands your attention and your empathy. As I think we made clear, you have to be really willing to suspend your own notions of what a good mother is, but that has got to be a very healthy exercise. The book will also exercise the hell out of your brain. I, I don't make the comparison to House of Leaves lightly, that's one of my very favourite books and the ultimate postmodern reading experience in my eyes, but The Upstairs House does share some of its DNA. It's much less elaborate and less complex, but still a book that won't let you off easy. So basically, if you want a challenge to both your intellect and your expectations, this is a good bet. Another comparison, actually, it reminds me of Emily Danforth playing Bad Heroines. Emily was on the show back in episode 8, so go listen to that if you haven't already. Like that novel, The Upstairs House features neglected figures from the history of queer literature and forces them into an uneasy confrontation with the modern world. They both play with metafiction in similar, if not identical, ways. So if you re- if you read playing Bad Heroines and enjoyed it, I think you'll get a lot from Julia's novel. We mentioned a few other books in our conversation. Um, the Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter. I won't go into this too much because I've got a feeling it's going to come up again in an episode quite soon. But that is an epochal collection of revisionist fairy tales. It's incredibly important to the genre, to feminist writing and to that reclamation of fairy tales in general. Julia recommended Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin. Now, I don't know much about this one, except that it's been highly recommended by a good few people. So I'll just read you the short synopsis. The back of the book says that a young woman named Amanda lies dying in a rural hospital clinic. A boy named David sits beside her. She's not his mother. He's not her child. Together they tell a haunting story of broken souls, toxins and the power and desperation of family. Yeah, it sounds pretty intense. I've heard a lot of people say it is. It's one I'm going to try and find some time to read soon. If you've read it, if you've liked it, if you hate it, let me know. I always like that feedback. Julia mentioned The Yellow Wallpaper, and we finally dated it to 1892, and that's by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. It's an absolute classic of American Gothic writing and a feminist landmark. I hadn't considered the comparison to The Upstairs House until she mentioned it, but now it seems blatantly obvious. The Yellow Wallpaper remains genuinely creepy and one of the greatest representations of growing instability and entrapment in literature. Go read it. Like The Upstairs House, it's a story that rewards attentive reading to tease out its many meanings. It had never occurred to me, for example, that the protagonist of The Yellow Wallpaper had postpartum depression. That's entirely new. It's probably obvious, but yeah, it had passed me by. So yeah, it's been a bit of a steep learning curve for me generally this week, and I feel better for it. It's good to give the old grey matter a tweak sometimes with something a bit alternative. Speaking of which, I hope you're enjoying our current trips around the edges of horror fiction in recent weeks. I know I don't always give you gore and monsters an extremity, but trust me, there's plenty of that coming in the summer. Horror publishing is a bit like the cinema calendar. The big explosive stuff comes out in the summer, and the quirky, offbeat gems in the spring and winter. So, at the moment, I'm looking at horror from all kinds of alternative perspectives. Take next week... We're discussing a novel that has been broadly marketed as a comedy, yet I can't recall the last time I read something that left me so viscerally upset. You'll find out what it is next week, I'm not going to spoil the fun. Following that, we're delving into the bridge between horror and fantasy, and after that, I'll be discussing what I truly consider to be the best straight horror novel written in literally years. I'll leave all that as a surprise, but trust me, the next few weeks are a diverse mix. What are your thoughts on all of this? Are you a fan of the fringe horror approach that I'm taking? Do you want more straightforward blood and guts? Do you want me to ask different questions? Let me know. Reach out on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or email me directly. It's always the same. Talkingscaredpod at gmail.com I love hearing from you. I've also got a new reviewer to thank. I promised I would do this for each and every review. Kaiserin wrote me a delightful review and I'm very grateful Please do keep those coming in on Apple Podcasts or iTunes if you can. It means the world to me. I found out this week that we are now regularly ranking in the top 10 of podcasts globally, and that is a thrill, but I love to know what real people think. That's so much better than stats. So yeah, drop me a review or an email or a tweet, whatever you want to do, just get in touch. I've also been getting updates that we are getting lots of listeners in Mexico, so Particularly, if you're listening from there, thanks a lot, say hi, and come speak to me. Unless you're Ted Cruz. But, with nothing else to say this week, we'll move on. Keep warm, keep safe, write letters to those you love, and don't forget what your mum went through. (laughs) Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.